Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. May I have a seat? Thank you, guys. All right. Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in John chapter 4 today. And uh, just to throw this out there, uh, there's probably going to be some hammering, some drilling, some whatever's going on downstairs. Um, And so just don't, it's going to be a distraction, but try not to let it be a distraction. I have no idea what's going on down there. And so um, just acknowledge that and and just deal with it as it comes. Um, But anyways... Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing on in our series uh, through the Gospels. Um, We're looking at uh, specifically interactions that Jesus had uh, throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, in which as he began his ministry, what did it look like for him to pursue people um, who really were a lot of the marginalized people in society? And so last week, uh, we talked about the fact that Jesus... Um, encountered tax collectors. And not only just did he encounter tax collectors, but he pursued tax collectors who we know from studying that they were um, some of the most hated people in the first century uh, because the way that they made their wealth was off of overtaxing people and and ultimately robbing from them what was rightfully theirs. Um, And so, so they were hated in society. Um, Zacchaeus was specifically the one that we talked about last week and the fact that Jesus pursued Zacchaeus in relationship and gave Zacchaeus what his wealth, health, and prosperity could not ultimately give him, and that was eternal satisfaction. So Jesus gave himself to Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus joyfully received him, and in joyfully receiving him, the next thing we see Zacchaeus do is goes and grabs all his tax-collecting buddies, brings them to his house, and initially launches basically a small group in his own home and says, you guys have to meet Jesus. You have to meet this guy who's provided for me what I've been longing for and what ultimately health, wealth, and prosperity has not provided for me in that satisfaction. Satisfaction. That's finding um, that, that void that I'm experiencing um, in everything that I'm pursuing, and it never lived up to the hype. Um, we we kind of cross-referenced that also to the fact that it wasn't ironic that the chapter before we dealt with the rich young ruler and the fact that the rich young ruler is in the same kind of boat as the tax collectors in the sense that he has a lot of wealth and he comes to Jesus because that wealth is not providing what he ultimately is hoping that it provides And he says, Jesus, what must I do to to inherit eternal life? What must I do in order to fill that void that I'm having within myself that that is longing for something more and it's not living up to it? And Jesus says, sell all your wealth. Sell what it is that you're holding on to. Give it away and ultimately come and follow me who will give you what you're looking for. And what we see is that the rich young ruler walks away sad because he still is placing hope in wealth that it's ultimately going to live up to the hype and give him what he's longing for, and that's satisfaction in his soul. And so we saw both of those things, but, but the reality is, is that we saw Jesus ferociously pursue someone who's marginalized, tax collectors, in order to bring him into a relationship with Christ and to experience Christ to the fullness and in that, what ultimately happened too was then what, what Zacchaeus was placing his hope in, which was wealth, all of a sudden now he was free from that and was able to give it away generously because now he found all he needed in Christ alone. And that's what we're looking at. And what we're going to be seeing today is, is another person who's marginalized in culture, another person who's outcast in culture, um, and, and we're going to see what happens when this woman at the well interacts with Jesus um, and, and what happens on the backside of that. And so John chapter 4 is where we're going to start out. And, and I just want to start out by saying this, that um, because this is also going to kind of revolve around the idea of testimonies and sharing testimonies. And I became a Christian um, when I was a freshman in high school because there were several people in my life who were willing to share their testimonies with me. They were willing to share with me a story that, that ultimately sounded ridiculous. And we've talked about that at times of, of how what we believe sounds ridiculous to people, to people who don't believe in it. Um, but, but they were willing 
to share it with me because they ultimately loved God more than they loved the approval of man. Another way I can say that is they they loved God more than they loved um, the perception of others in the way that they viewed them. And that's really big for us to see because I think that's one of the biggest stumbling blocks we have is struggling with how other people are going to view us or think about us when we share with them a message that sounds ridiculous. Um, But again, because of what they experienced in their relationship with Christ, they didn't care what I might have said back to them after they shared it with me because they knew what they've experienced and anything that I would have put on them as far as ridicule or, or, or considering them an outcast or just considering them weird. And one of them was my next door neighbor, so I wasn't going anywhere. I mean, if this was kind of a relationship of friendship in which we've built, and, and if all of a sudden now him sharing this message is going to cause something weird within that, um, then I'm like, he's going to see me tomorrow. and He's going to see me the next day and the next day. And so he was willing to kind of put our friendship on the back burner in order to share with me a message about what God has ultimately done in his life, hoping that God would do the same in my life. And that's kind of the foundation of what I want to talk about with with you today. So John chapter 4, I'm going to read 42 verses here. All right, now that sounds like a lot. And and the challenge with this as well is this has to be my shortest sermon that I've preached so far um, at the district. I'm going to try to keep it to about 30 minutes. And so you're you're probably looking at that saying that's impossible, but I'm, I'm going for a miracle here. The most verses in the shortest amount of time. So let's go. John chapter four, verse one. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, which is about noontime. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I love verse 25 and 26 here. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Basically, what's going on there is is she's saying when the Messiah gets here, he's going to straighten all these things out. And Jesus just kind of responds, I'm straightening it all out. Just listen to me. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was taking or talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? 
So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For, th- for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to your word this morning asking that as we, as we look at this story of the woman at the well and the interaction between her and Jesus and what happened there, God, we ask that it would lead us to know you more and more and that in knowing you more and more that it would lead us to love you more and more. And in loving you more and more, God, we ask through your Holy Spirit that we would begin to speak your word more and more to those around us. So God, please, through your Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts and our minds, inspire our hearts and our minds to see your truth in the scriptures today and for your truth in the scriptures today to continue to transform our hearts and our minds to become more and more like your son Jesus so that as we go out into society, whether it's in our workplaces, whether it's in our neighborhoods, that we would interact with those who are marginalized in our culture and in our context in order to share with them living water, in order to share with them the message of your son Jesus and the fact that he provides ultimate satisfaction for each of us that we're longing for, that we're so desperately wanting to worship, and that in that you would be glorified in all things. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, four things that, that I want you to see out of this whole text, and the first one is this. This woman, this woman at the well, is a complete train wreck, all right? She is a complete train wreck. There's, there's nothing about her life that we should look at and want for ourselves or try to emulate ourselves. This woman's not sought out in society in high regard. Um, she's not sought out for marital advice um, as far as anyone else in the community. What we see is she's a woman so damaged and so overcome uh, by shame and guilt and embarrassment at how her life has ultimately turned out that she's withdrawn from society altogether. She's withdrawn. She's removed herself. She's, she's literally made herself invisible to this little community that, that she lives in. And the reason why we know that is because she's at the well in the middle of the day. Nowhere in the world at no period of time do women draw water from a well in the middle of the day. The, the reason why is because have you ever gone out in the middle of summertime in order to draw water or, or just to go somewhere in the middle of the summertime out in the sun and just sit there and experience the heat and say, this is delightful. Like nobody does that. When we first moved down to Miami, Florida, we moved down there during summertime and we thought that's it's summertime. So that's when you go outside and play. Nobody goes outside and does anything during the summertime in South Florida because it's like walking through a blanket. That's what it feels like. 
People go outside and enjoy outside when it's winter time in South Florida. The same is here in Middle Eastern cultures. No one goes out in the middle of the day. Where they do go out is, is five, six o'clock in the morning. That's when they're drawing water from the wells. That's when all the mothers and all the children and all the women are going to the well in order to draw water for what they need for, for the day. And this is actually creates um, a, a kind of a social environment as well. This is when they're gathering around the wells, when they're gossiping about life, when they're talking about so-and-so next door, when, when they're sharing about what's going on or what their day is going to look like. This is a sh- kind of a social um, environment. And this woman has completely removed herself from, first off, the opportunity to be gossiped about at the, at the well in the morning because in a, a tight-knit society like what first century is, everyone knows everyone's junk. I mean, guys, you can experience that even in our culture as a small church is as soon as someone says something to someone else, all of a sudden now within five minutes, you're receiving a text message from someone else saying, hey, I didn't know this happened. You got a job. That's amazing. Like, like word travels very quickly in our small context. And the same thing is true in first century Jerusalem um, and specifically in Samaria here is that everything is tight knit and close and everyone gossips. Everyone talks about what's going on around them. And so it, it's, it's not going to be a shock to people when they see this woman and realize that she's had five husbands, you can basically say, and not to be too vulgar here, but she's the whore of the city. This is who she is. And she's removing herself from society in order to not be ridiculed, in order for people to not preach at her what she already preaches to herself every single day, what she already knows about herself every single day. This woman is just an absolute train wreck. Shame has taken over her. She's withdrawn from society. The beautiful thing to see here is that not only has she removed herself, but she's also a Samaritan. She's a Samaritan and she's also a woman. These are three things in which Jesus, because he is a Jew in first century Jerusalem, would not be interacting with. Primarily because of people considering him a rabbi, considering him a teacher, they're saying you need to remove yourself from anybody who's unclean. So for the fact that this woman is considered a prostitute in her society, considered someone who who is exchanging sex for rent, essentially, Jesus, you should not be interacting with people like that because you are a teacher. You need to remain pure. You need to remain holy. You need to remain righteous in the sight of others. And so don't place yourself in a situation in which someone might um, um, accuse you of something that you're not doing. So you shouldn't be talking to this woman. Not only that, you as a Jew should not be talking to a Samaritan because Jews looked at Samaritans as an unclean bloodline. And so to interact with them could pollute your culture. Not only that, but she's a woman. And women in first century regarded as property. They were regarded as as less than men. They were regarded as objects within the household. Literally tools within the household in order to accomplish things. Women were ultimately to remain silent in first century because their, their, their value and their worth was not held in high regard like what men were held in high regard. And so three different ways this woman, this this entire story should have never happened if Jesus were to live by status quo in first century. So this story is both stunning and scandalous. And what we see is how Jesus interacts with this woman is that he goes, and this is the second thing, is that he goes ruthlessly after her heart. And as he's going after her heart, he's not gently doing it either. He says there's, there's water that you can have that wells up into eternal life. There's water to be had that will satisfy you. There's water to be had where you don't have to be isolated, where you can walk in freedom, that you, that you trying to solve the brokenness in your heart has not worked with men. And there's a way for your heart to be made whole. And you remember her response, like after Jesus tells her, this is the living water that you can have, her response is, sir, tell me where this water is so I can stop coming to this well. And Jesus, because he loves her, this is how he deals with her. He says, woman, go get your husband and we'll talk about it. 
Go get your husband and we'll talk about it. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, yeah, I know. You've had five and the guy you're with now isn't your husband either. Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he exposing her deepest hurt? Why is he exposing her deepest reality, what she's been holding onto, what she's been actually using as kind of a, a resource for life is men. Why is Jesus exposing that rather than just giving her living water? rather than just giving her himself. Because to expose her deepest hurt is to reveal to her that she needs a savior. This is why we as a church, we cannot sugarcoat the gospel in any way. We cannot proclaim the gospel and share the gospel via testimony, via what's happened in our life. If we cover up our dark past, and try to sugarcoat them and try to say, we've always been good to share that with someone else, they're going to miss out on what the gospel is actually here to do. The gospel is not meant to make good people better. The gospel is meant to make dead people alive. That's what it's here to do. Dead people are dead for a reason. We're spiritually dead because we are wretched. We are sinners, we are broken, and this doesn't matter if you've been in church your entire life or if you've just stepped into church last week for the first time. This doesn't matter if you were dealing drugs as a five-year-old or if you've been in Sunday school and haven't missed Sunday school since you came out of the womb. The reality is, is that the scriptures talk about two types of people, those who are wretched and sinners and those who are self-righteous and morally upright and good. And the reality is, is both are viewed apart from Christ as not inheriting the kingdom of God. Both are viewed, Isaiah actually says that those who um, consider their righteous deeds in order to glorify God are also viewed as filthy rags. So us trying to do good or earn righteousness or earn um, the right way to live is viewed just as much as someone who murders someone out of anger of their heart. There's no difference between the two. Someone who, who places their hope in never missing a church service never missing helping walk an old lady across the street, never missing anything that, that makes you feel good about, the, about your morality is just as, as bad as the person who's shooting up in the corner of their dorm room. Because both realities, placing hope in what we do as, as men and women, placing hope in something that is not Christ himself is determining, is, is deserving of hell because we need Jesus. We need Jesus. And so as we're sharing our testimonies, Jesus dives into what her testimony is. He dives into what her reality is is because he needs her to see her reality. Just like we need people to see their realities because without seeing your reality, you will never see the glory and the beauty and, and the majesty of Jesus and who he is. We have to see our sin before we can see our Savior. The interesting thing here is, is after he exposes this to her, she then wants to argue, um, kind of get into this theological, ethereal kind of conversation with Jesus. Um, what, what she's ultimately trying to do here is she knows the shame and the guilt. She knows what's overtaken her life and has caused her to remove from society. She knows what's going on there. And because of that, she doesn't want to go there. And so as soon as Jesus exposes this to her, she now wants to jump into sort of this theological argument. Here's what she says, is it gets to being about where we should worship. Is it on this mountain that we should worship or is it on this mountain that we should worship? And Jesus says to her, it's not about mountains at all. It's not about places. He deconstructs her temple mindset. See, the temple mindset is, is where do I have to go and make sacrifice and atone for all that I've done? As soon as Jesus exposes to her the junk in her life, she immediately responds with, where then do I need to go in order to atone for these things? Where do I then need to go in order to make what's wrong right? 
And what she's ultimately asking him is, you've exposed my junk, you've exposed my mess, where do I go to get it cleaned up? And what Jesus is ultimately telling her is, you don't have to go anywhere. I'm here to clean it up for you. I'm here to fix the mess that is in your life. Your life. Jesus' response is, no, no, no. I, I have come to make you right. You don't have to go somewhere. You don't have to go to Mecca in order to make it right. And Mecca is, is where Muslims put their faith in in order to go to a place to make it right. Mecca is, is where they bow down in order to worship um, their God um, who they believe is ultimately going to provide for them what they need. But the reality is, is in the, in the Islamic faith is that Mecca is also a place where you have to go at least once in your lifetime in order to complete the journey of being made right. Every single Muslim worldwide has to make a journey to Mecca at some place, at some time, in order to be made right. And the reality is, is Jesus is breaking down, he's deconstructing that idea, that temple mindset that we have to go to a place to make atonement for our sins, that we have to go to a place in order to work ourselves there, in order to create a, an outside external sacrifice of an animal and then have that blood shed from that animal to then cover our sins. We have to do all these things in order for us to be made right. This is what she's asking is, how do, where do I go do that? And Jesus is trying to reveal to her that I'm the one that's coming to do this. That I'm the one that's coming to, to make you right by me being the Mecca, by me being the one who's ultimately going to be the sacrifice that sheds my blood in order to cover your sins and atone for your sins and in order to atone for what wrong has created in your life. And then the beauty of that is, is Jesus is also referencing the fact that we don't have a Mecca in which we go to, but we become Mecca. We become the temple of God. We become the dwelling place of God in which he himself comes and dwells within us. And so anywhere and everywhere we go with the gospel, preaching and proclaiming and teaching and sharing the gospel with others is us bringing to them the place of worship bringing to them what they need in order to deconstruct what they're placing hope in in their life. It becomes mobile rather than a permanent location. The third thing I want you to see here um, kind of goes back and, back and forth with this, this idea of her being theologically confused is that that should also give us rest. Because there's, a, there's another group of people in this text that are also theologically confused, and it's the disciples. It's the ones who are actually spending a lot of time with Jesus. And when they actually show up on this scene, what, what does it say? It, it says that they don't do anything. I, I love the fact that they don't do anything when they show up on the scene. They're literally walking in, and they see Jesus interacting with this woman, and they don't immediately... Uh, Say, like, Jesus, what are you doing? You know you're not supposed to be talking to women. You know that you're not supposed to be talking to Samaritans. You, you know that you're not supposed to be talking to prostitutes. Jesus, like, this is kind of scandalous. What is going on here? This would be similar to, like, you driving downtown and seeing me standing on a corner talking to a prostitute. Uh, maybe we should call Jeremy and Josh and pull them in on this. And I think we should create a little committee and, and we need to do a little intervention with Dwayne because he's talking to a prostitute on a corner. But this, yeah, I didn't even think, yeah, call Kelsey, figure out that what's going on there first. Um, but thanks, Jeremy. I know what Jeremy will do. He's going to, anyways. Um, but this is what's happening here. And, and, these guys walk up on the scene, and, and one of the reasons why I think that they don't do anything to begin with is, is just picture it. You've got this woman at the well who encounters Jesus, and Jesus exposes to her all of her junk. Do you think that's a pretty scene? I mean, what usually happens to you when you have a friend who's probably a good friend exposes your junk like I can just picture it in this scene that they're walking up and they're seeing Jesus talking to this woman and looking at the woman there's snot there's tears there's just everything coming out of her 
And they're just kind of like, oh, okay. Don't really know what to do here. Jesus, you need some food? Like, like it's kind of awkward for them. But the reality is, is that what we need to see here is that we don't need to let theological confusion, we don't need to let confusion about situation get in the way of the gospel doing what it needs to do. Because there's going to be a lot of times, like I think where, where we get so crammed up in our minds is that we believe the gospel advancing should look a specific way. And if it doesn't look that way, if it doesn't look the way that I feel it should look, then it shouldn't be right. Or, or like if, if the gospel is advancing and it makes you uncomfortable, it's probably doing what it should be doing. But if the gospel advancing is always you being in, a, in an environment that's very comfortable, that's allowing you to be able to pat yourself on the back, the truth is, is you're probably trusting more in what you think is right rather than what the gospel thinks is right. Because the reality is Jesus going to this woman at the well and the implications that that has on our lives is that we should be pursuing people that we are 100% going to be uncomfortable dealing with, not only uncomfortable talking to, but those who are around us, those who, who perceive us, should also be uncomfortable with the fact that we are engaging them. Uncomfortable with the fact that, that, that we're inviting them into our community. The gospel is scandalous, and we try to... We try to, to, to make it look as though it's going to be this clean environment. Like, guys, we're, we're planting this church, actively planting this church. And I think one of the, the easy mindsets to jump into is how can we market this thing to look like it's all put together, to look like it's all perfect community because that's what's going to attract other people out in, out in the community, out in the culture. But the reality is, is if we make this thing look as perfect as possible, if we make it look like the, the Pleasantville District Church, the reality is, is all it's going to do is attract people who they then believe also that their lives are perfect. And this thing is going to come in and it's going to be fake and it's going to have a facade on it the entire time. And what we're actually going to create is a barrier between us and the gospel because everybody's going to think they don't need it. And the reality is, is that around us, and I'm even including those people who think that their lives are beautiful and pretty and right and whatever, Everybody around us are in need of the gospel, but they're in need of us exposing to them where they're placing their hope in that is not Jesus. And we don't need to let the way the circumstances look like hinder us from being able to do that. The fourth thing I want you to see is that salvation belongs to God and he's been working your salvation out through the intricate details of the word of God spreading through the testimonies of the saved and adopted. What Jesus does here with this woman is he gives her himself. He gives her himself, and what does she immediately do? She runs to the city to share it. Just think about that. She's at the well in the middle of the day because she's removed herself from society, because she's removed herself from, from ridicule because of the shame and the guilt that she feels for the life that she's chosen for herself. And immediately after meeting Jesus, she then jumped, she, she dived straight into everything that she was avoiding. Have you ever thought about that? Like she immediately jumps into everyone who's going to tell her how terrible she is. She immediately jumps into the community that has ostracized and marginalized her because of the fact that she's a whore in the city. But what does the text say? Is that she's come into the city and she's sharing about Jesus all that she's ever done. She's sharing with the city. She's actually coming to the city and saying, 
I'm, I'm, I'm a whore. I'm terrible. I've, I've had five husbands and right now I'm exchanging rent for sex. Like I am a terrible person, but Jesus has come into my life and has exposed that and is now sharing with me living water. He's now sharing with me something that I need in order to break the shackles of this life that I've been pushing for, that I've been placing my hope in. Jesus now provides for me all that I've ever longed for, all that I've ever needed. And it says that people believe Jesus because of her testimony. People want to experience, people want to meet Jesus because of this woman's testimony. What people are seeing in this woman is, is, is yes, you've got a dark past. You have a dark past that we, that we disagree with, we, that, that, that makes us feel uncomfortable, that we would never want for our own daughters. You have a dark past. But what we do want is now we can see that there has been a transformation in you. We can see that there is something different in you because of this person that you've met. And if we've seen who you are, who you were, and now we're seeing who you are and who Christ has made you to be, then we've got to meet this Jesus guy. We've got to meet this Jesus guy. That's the main reason for testimonies. is not for people to get to know you more, but for people to get to know Jesus more. If testimonies are, are you focusing on all that you've ever done and never getting to what Jesus has done, then it's not a testimony. And the reason why we're focusing on testimonies today is because do you think when this woman, she was confused about where to worship. She meets Jesus and runs into the town. Do you think she was a theological genius? No. Do you think she had all five points of Reformed theology already figured out in her mind and knew exactly how to explain those things to others and then was going in and saying, here's exactly how God saves people? No. Do you think she knew what church philosophy looked like and what it means to break bread and to drink wine and what it looks like to have communion and what it looks like to sing songs of praise and worship? Do you think she had all that figured out before she started sharing her testimony? Absolutely not. All she had to go on was the fact that Jesus said, you're a sinner and you need me. And the place of worship is not a place, it is me. That changed her life and that changed her message. And that's what she shared with others. The way that we want to end out today's service is by, is by you hearing the stories of, of God meeting people where they were, how Jesus saved them, and what Christ has been doing in their lives from there on out. The reason why I want to do this is because it's, it's, it's easy for me to always share just from up here my testimony and the fact that a fifth grader shared the gospel with me next door and then two years later a, worship, uh, a youth pastor took me under his wing and began sharing with me all that Christ has ever shared with him and um, it's easy for me to do that. But in a lot of ways, it's still hard for people to say, well, well, you're a pastor. You should have a theological testimony. You should know what it's like to be able to share with others. But the reality is, is that you have greater opportunities to connect with people in community than I do because they're going to view you as more like them than they would ever view me like them. Does that make sense? Like as soon as I, if it's always the conversation. If I'm sitting down with somebody and I ask them, what do you do? And they say, I'm an accountant. And they say, well, what do you do? And I'm a, I'm a pastor. And what kind of pastor would I be if I didn't share with you what I believe? And so it's like, it's easy for me to have a gospel conversation with someone. But if accountant says uh, to the other person, what do you do? And I'm a teacher. This is what I do. And then you kind of start talking about what it means to be an accountant and a teacher. And you go back and forth. Like, like there's commonality there. Because they're not viewing each other as holier than thou, unfortunately. That's the stumbling block we have to get over as ministers is getting over the fact that we're broken too, that we have a past as well. We have a future that's going to be broken just as much as well. So I want you to hear from testimonies that are, that are different than mine in order for you to also kind of see what it's like to be able to share with others 
what Christ has done in your life. Separate from just being a pastor, even though Jeremy's a pastor, but still, he's going to share as well. So I'm going to have Jeremy and Katie come on up. They're going to be our first couple to, to share. Um, <clears throat> so I'll kind of just give a brief snapshot of what it looked like for us right before we got married or um, the years that we spent dating and engaged. Um, I know that my initial perception and what I thought Christianity was um, was more about what I could do, how much I had to do in order to be accepted by God or be accepted by a specific church. Um, and that's really just what I grew up with. That was the only knowledge that I had of what it looked like to be a believer. Um, and coming from a broken home and Katie coming from a broken home as well, once we got married, um, our initial thought was, well, we're going to, we want our marriages to look different than what our parents' marriages look like. So we're going to do this right and we're going to do the right thing and we're going to go to church. And the answer all along wasn't that, you know, Jesus is there to redeem us and redeem this past for us and, and, you know, help be a part of our marriage and be what holds our marriage together. It was more, we're going to go to church because that's what people do. And you, you get yourself together there. Um, so that was how, that was a, really how we started our marriage out. The first four years, um, was just going to church and being a part of a congregation there where there was no growth happening. Um, nothing necessarily changed in our lives. We said that we went to church. We said that we were a part of this committee, or we said that we um, were in a certain Sunday school class, but our actions outside of that didn't look any different than what they did years leading up to that point. Um, so we kind of got to the point where, I guess I should say, when you're at a point where you feel like it depends on you for everything, once you fail, one or two times, then you just don't care anymore. You you stop trying to do those things. You stop trying to do well or, you know, show up at church events or whatever. Once you fail and you feel like it's all on you, you kind of just pull back and you're like, well, it doesn't matter because I'm going to fail anyways. Um, and that was really just our misunderstanding of what the gospel really was um, at the time. So four years into the marriage, we um, we were invited to a church plant in Tennessee uh, city Church, which they're actually coming this summer to help around the city do some stuff. And shout out to Katie Suggs. She's from City Church. Um, but we, Katie and I, were at a place at the church that we had gone to for four years where we hadn't necessarily seen growth happen or anything. Um, but toward the end of our time there at that church, um, we were coming back from vacation one year. Um, and we we're very focused on what we could provide, um, the type of vehicle we drove, the type of house that we lived in. Um, finance, just our outward appearance was most important to us and to the people around us. Whether we had it all together inside the house or in our marriage, it really was, you know, what do we look like to everyone else? And at the time, it was not a minivan and a station wagon. So, <laughs> but, um, so yeah, we were coming back from vacation one year and we both just broke on the way back. We were like, we cannot do this anymore. We were coming, we had just come back from a vacation that we didn't need to spend money on. We were in a car that we probably couldn't afford. We were in a house that we couldn't afford. We were coming back just to go back to work the following Monday, just to try to get by more. And that was really the breaking point, I feel like, for both of us, where we felt like something's got to give, something's got to change, where we are misunderstanding everything that's happening here. Um, so we tried to get more involved at the church we were at then. Um, fast forward, we were invited to City Church to just go visit one Sunday. I feel like God was like leading me toward that as well. I was really on board with going and, and trying out something new because I could tell that nothing was happen, happening where we were at. Um, Katie had just joined some awesome committee, I'm sure, and was like, I do not want to, I do not want to go be a part of this church. Um, so we went, um, that Sunday and on the way home, we literally got in the car. It was an hour from our, uh, an hour from our house. Um, we got in the car and literally cried from the time we got into the car, like halfway home. And I felt like that was definitely the point. I feel like God showed me that you can't do this on your own. Uh, 
Um, one thing just plays over and over in my head from being a part of that church, and I don't remember if it was that specific Sunday or not, um, but the song Jesus Paid It All and the verses that were added later was praise the one who paid my debt and raised the slap up from the dead. It's really been like an anthem that just plays through my head since that time. So since then, we, we went there for a year and then um, we actually were at that church for a year and just really felt like God was leading us to do something else to um, really just show what has happened in our lives and show what he's done in that in just this short amount of time. Um, because my knowledge, my view was always, well, these guys are gray hair and they're seasoned and they grew up a preacher's kid and they've always been this way. And then we just see this change happen um, in us where God just really met us at this really weak point and was like, you can't, you can't do it anymore. Um, so we were there for a year and then um, moved down to South Florida to Miami to essentially do the same thing, um, to really just try to reach people in that area um, and show what God has done for us um, just in this short amount of time and how how they too are not out of reach and how they too and the rest of us um, are not at a point where we do have it all together. I mean, Katie and I will be the first ones to say that we do not have it all together. And I feel like, we, I feel like we've gotten really good at that over the past several years. She's probably better at it than I am. I'm normal. <laughs> but anyways, uh, <laughs> so really that's been the past four years, almost four years now, I guess, because we started there in 2013 at City Church. So that's really been the close to the past four years of our life, um, really just sharing what, where God met us um, and what that looks like for us going forward. Jeremy. I'm going to share my testimony. <laughs> um, so just a little bit more like my personal um, testimony is what I would really like to share with you this morning. I feel so, like as Dwayne was speaking about the woman at the well, I can relate so much to her. Um, I was saved at a young age, at seven, and I grew up in the church. Um, I grew up in a spiritually broken home. So I constantly had this war um, within myself of, okay, I know, like, I kind of know what, the gospel is mostly didn't um but I know what's good but then I also had a whole other side of me that was like looking for this love and acceptance through any avenue I could find it so as a teenager I looked for that through boys and then after I got married I looked for that through being the life of the party or um through being a mother or through having like what looked like the perfect life to everyone. And as I got into my later 20s, as God started, of course, through this whole time, he had placed people in our life to speak the truth. But for me to hear it, I was very closed off and just doing what I wanted to do. Um, but as he really began to break my heart and, like Jeremy said, realized that this was nothing that I could do on my own and I'm never going to gain that acceptance through my husband or through my children or um, through whatever avenue I tried to go down. Um, and he brought us to that breaking point, brought me to that breaking point where it was, there was no more, nothing else that I could do. Um, just really like I remember like us looking at each other and once we had kind of gotten through that threshold of okay God we are giving this to you and our lives are are yours and we cannot do anything and he put on our hearts to go to Florida and like looking at Jeremy and be like really like we were just like real bad sinners a couple of years ago <laughs> like how are we going to share this with other people um and i'm so thankful um I, i've struggled for a long time with my past sin of and just that holding me down and that burden um but i'm so thankful for that because my story is different than kelsey's and 
my story is different than Drew's, and it reaches other people who may have struggled with that um, in a way that theirs can't, and theirs reaches different people than mine. Um, so it's just so encouraging to look back at, it's terrible to look at your back sin, and it hurts to look at your sin from the past, but it's also just the story of redemption, how God can take all of that dirtiness and turn that into his glory if you're willing to give it to him. I grew up in church and had a wonderful Christian family and had parents who let me know the truth very early on. Um, I accepted Jesus into my heart at the age of five or six um, and have just been in church ever since that time. Um, as a small child, I understood that the Holy Spirit was in my life, but I didn't understand what that meant. I became, as time went on, very legalistic. Um, it was about doing the right things or the wrong things, hanging out with the right kind of people, being at the right place, going to you know youth group and being involved in these activities. Um, but it was just activities. Um, it was being where I knew I should be. Um, fast forward more years, I would try to control situations, control people, um, make all my decisions the way I wanted to. Um, not a whole lot of input from God. Whenever bad things would happen, we'd chat, but I'd go to church, and that was sort of the extent of our relationship. Um, as I continued to make more decisions in my life and move forward, none of my decisions were turning out how I planned. Um, nothing I picked turned out the way I thought it would. Um, didn't get married when I thought I would, didn't go to the college I thought I would. Um, you know, Things would happen with family members, and I couldn't control it, although I tried. Um, Getting into law school, that was the thing where I decided I'm finally in control. This was my plan. This is what I was going to do. This is what it's going to look like. And it it didn't look anything like I planned. Um, God was in control of it all the way. He placed me right where I needed to be um, against what I thought. Um, I was able to step back um, and love on other people in difficult situations and be involved in their lives and realize that it's not about me controlling what happens, it's about doing what God wants me to do with my life um, and being different. Um, and I don't always look different. My whole last year of law school, I spent the entire year sick to my stomach and anxious because I couldn't find a job. A whole year that I didn't even need a job yet. Um, so I, I go back and forth, but I've learned that God is always involved in everything. Um, it's not our plans or our success or our comfort that he's looking for. Uh, he has a plan all his own. He wants us to share what we've learned with other people. Um, you can do that in any career path. Um, and it's not about success and a comfortable life. Um, I feel blessed to know that that's not Life should not be comfortable. Whenever I let it get comfortable, that's when it's inappropriate. Um, God pushes us and gives us opportunities, and we just have to be willing to take them. Okay, so I'm the last one, and uh, Dwayne didn't even ask me to come up, but uh, I, I knew Aaron was coming. <laughs> I just went ahead and took the liberty of asking myself, so um, thank you, Dwayne. And uh, everyone else, I hope I can uh, do okay here. I I, uh, I didn't want to share my testimony though, um, so I just changed the rules again. Uh, <laughs> but here we are. So uh, I wanted to share the uh, the testimony of someone who uh, has impacted me the the last uh, ten year uh, ten not ten years but short ten months. Uh, I've worked. I started a new job uh, last April for the Starfish Initiative, and uh, we do youth mentoring. And it's just an office of about 11 full-time staff. And uh, I worked for a man named Bob Kaiser until last weekend. And my voice is changing. I didn't think I'd do this. Um, whew, Bob, uh, Bob went to be the Lord uh, last weekend. And um, I had the privilege of watching him uh, live the last 10 months of his life uh, fully devoted to God and to uh, the passions that God had placed on his heart. And um, I didn't totally understand Bob. I mean, he had he had shared uh, a reference to his faith at times. I knew he was involved at his, at his church. Uh, 
but I really didn't understand why over the last two or three years that he's been battling cancer, he um, worked so hard. I judged him for it, honestly, as admirable as, as it is. And um, I was like, why aren't you taking time to rest? Why aren't you home with your family? And yesterday I got to go to um, his memorial service and uh, they could not, they, the stage was full of chairs because they didn't have anywhere in the back for people to even stand anymore. So the choir um, had a lot of people sitting with them and uh, it was just a full room and um, the service ended and I think we continued for about 45 minutes of people just standing up and sharing uh, the ways that Bob had impacted their lives. And I was able to gather that um, after many years of being an accountant and having a lot of success in his work, he went on a missions trip uh, with some family members and um, and just felt God pulling on his heart to pursue something else and to pursue youth mentoring for some reason. And uh, he went ahead and made that happen. He didn't have any qualifications. He was an accountant, you know, he was a numbers guy. And um, I don't know that he had really done anything with youth uh, throughout his life, but um, I know some tough things that happened to him as a youth really probably inspired him to do that. But, uh, you know, he's someone who could have said, you know what, God, that's like great that um, you're giving me this passion, but he, uh, but, you know, I'm not qualified. And he didn't let anything like that stop him. Uh, he pursued uh, this decision, this conviction. And, you know, he, he did this cool thing of going from the corporate world to a nonprofit. But I think God could call people from the nonprofit to the corporate. So that's not what I'm trying to say. But um, he felt God pulling and he took courage and went forward and made it happen. Um, being a numbers guy, I'm sure it didn't make uh, sense with the numbers uh, with his salary cut. But I got to watch him. Um, work endlessly, tirelessly, even there were days that he shared uh, he had thrown up in our sink at work and through chemo and everything, and there were a lot of good days. There were tough days where he was there as well, before anyone, after anybody. And, you know, Bob didn't share uh, the gospel so much in his words, um, but yesterday at the funeral, um, at the, the memorial service he shared, uh, well, it was shared by family, by colleagues, by just people all over. Um, he'd been really involved in a homeless ministry um, that I never even knew about. And um, all these people came to give witness to the life that he lived and the way that he lived it to the fullest. And he knew his gifting was numbers, and he knew God had given him a passion for youth, and he just put those together and gave it his all. And, you know, from my perspective, I was like, I thought he was neglecting his family or something because I couldn't imagine someone giving so much at work and also giving that much at home, but he totally did. And so um, they shared his uh, his life verse, and I had noticed this verse on his desk before, um, but they had it um, as a part of the program yesterday. And so it's Proverbs 3, um, 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And we can look at the ways that Jesus did that, right? So Jesus loved the Lord with all his heart all the way to the cross and leaned not on his own understanding, um, but uh, went fully with God's fully forward with uh, God's will and acted, um, well, spent his whole life acknowledging who, who God is and who he is as God and um, certainly had a fear of the Lord uh, to know through temptation of, of Satan here on earth and through uh, being obedient to God's will to the cross that um, God's way in the end is, is going to prevail, and he trusted that um, to the full ex extent. And so Bob, um, striving to be like Christ, was all in with everything that he did. Um, he was a simple guy. Um, you know, you look at do not lean on your own understanding, um, he, someone, something that someone shared at, at the, uh, the service yesterday was in multiple men's groups with him and Bible studies and committees uh, through the church. And he said, you know, there'd be theological debates, there'd be mem uh, scripture memorization, but um, Bob was never very concerned with those things. He led with his faith with action. And I know we've all got various ways that we're motivated to share our faith, but his was just by brute action with uh just he was tireless in it and um so yeah he was simple and that he didn't need to know all the answers but he knew what he believed and who he believed in and um he he just lived his life out of that and um he was above reproach and everything he did 
and uh, acknowledging the God that uh, led him, and uh, he was faithful to the Lord to, to the end. And so um, I just want to say, I guess, in closing that um, Bob was, was selfless, as Christ is selfless, and uh, though um, there could have been a lot of things that held him back from, from going forward with uh, his passions, um, he didn't have anything holding him back. He let Christ set him free, and um, he acknowledges his gifting and his conviction, and he just went forward in love. And so uh, I just wanted to share that um, in memory of Bob. And, uh, yeah, so thanks for listening. And uh, I know you guys didn't know him, but uh, he's inspired me. So thank you. As the band uh, is coming up here, um, I just want to, again, thank each person for coming up and sharing their testimony. Um, the church is made up of uh, a people who have testimonies. Um, and not only that, but God orchestrates bringing people together. I just even know from from a district church testimony standpoint, um, God is is organizing and orchestrating every single one of us to be together in relationship for us to grow in the gospel together in order to share the gospel with those that are around us. I mean, I can think about the fact that God orchestrated for Kelsey and I to move here and, and end up in the same apartment complex as the Wilkins um, to be able to meet the Wilkins and, and get to know the Wilkins and, and ultimately kind of use that as a foundation upon building and planting this church and and then having the the Elliots and Josh move up as well and and being able to meet Andrew through Soma and then having a connection from um, Southern California and Lulu's coffee shop and getting to know the halls as well like God is is placing us and organizing and orchestrating every detail of our life in order for us to come together as a community to lift up the gospel and to share the gospel with others. Um, to share the message of Jesus saying in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. And so we're sharing that message that Jesus is the way, that Jesus is the truth, that Jesus is the life, and it is that message that we are lifting up, and it is Christ that we are lifting up. And so the way that we want to reflect today is just saying thank you, to Jesus for what he does, for where he's brought us from, how he's rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the beloved son, and that Jesus is the only person that can do that. And so let's reflect, let's worship, let's praise him for what he's done and what he's going to continue to do through this church as we spread and share our testimonies with others around us. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at